The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Professor Charles Telfer. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. I invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to Psalm 1. Reading Psalm 1, in the good Anglo-Saxon of the ESV. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. And therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, since this is, these are devotional reflections for seminarians, and since we get to read Hebrew so little, let us then consider the text Take 60 seconds or so to read the text as the original authors wrote it. Ashrei ha'ish asher lo halach batsat reshaim uvederech hataim lo amad ubemoshav leitzim lo yashav ki im betorat Adonai chavtzo vetorato yehge yomam velayla Vahaya ke'etz shatul al palgemayim, asher pirio yiten, bito, ba'alav lo yabul. Velo asher yase, vakol asher yase, yatsliach. Verse 4. Lo hein harashaim, ki im kamots asher tidfenu ruach, al kein. Lo yakumu reshaim b'mishpat v'hataim b'atzat tzadikim. Ki yodea Adonai derech tzadikim v'derech reshaim toved. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Glorious God, we thank you that you have opened the way to new life for us in Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We ask that you would clarify and strengthen our faith and that you would renew our love. For Jesus' sake, amen. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus, when our Savior was at the beginning of his ministry and calling disciples to himself and was being followed by the crowds, he went up on a hill in Galilee and he spoke these same words that begin our psalm. Ashrei ha'ish. Ashrei ha'ish. These are the blessednesses. These, this is the invitation to the happy life. Matthew records it as makarioi and Jerome records it as beati. Beati, from which we get our Beatitudes. I will tell you 
who the happy person is. I will tell you, Jesus says, who the person to be envied really is. And then Jesus goes on in classic form to make these strange string of declarations. When people revile you, you're happy. When people come after you and persecute you, when you have lack, when you suffer, you are truly one of the fortunate ones because you're my disciples. When you're poor, when you're hungry, no matter what it costs you, you come out ahead because you're my disciple. This is the, happy, this is the secret to the happy life. Our Lord Jesus is following in an, a very old tradition when he makes these invitations to the blessed, to the full and happy life. This is the call of the prophets. For example, in Isaiah, he says in chapter 30, verse 18, that the Lord is, exalts himself to show mercy to you. Blessed are all who wait for him, same expression. And of course, this is the invitation again and again in the wisdom literature. So for example, in Proverbs 3, verse 13, same expression, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver and her profit than gold. I so appreciate how scripture as a whole from the beginning to the end always appeals to our self-interest. It's never follow me and you'll be the loser in the end. Follow me and you'll, you'll, you'll miss out on the, on the best things. No, it's always quite the opposite. The, the scripture offers us the best things and uh, appeals to our uh, self-concern. Perhaps the most classic invitation is that is in Proverbs 8, verse uh, 32 and following, where wisdom in the form of a woman personified uh, it makes this same invitation. Blessed are all those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself, and all who hate me love death. Now, I know that these faculty uh, devotions are taken from the wisdom literature, but I think if I can press the envelope, press things just a little bit and not get in too much trouble with our uh, Dean of Students, uh, I think it's worth our time to take a moment to see how the people who gave us our Psalter, that they put a gate on the front end of it. They, they taught us a way of reading it in terms of wisdom, that the entryway into the Psalter is a wisdom psalm. They want us to read this collection from a wisdom point of view. Now, of course, on a first reading, it's very easy to see how Psalm 1 is very similar to uh, the Proverbs, for example, there's a, a focus on moral types. If you look at the end of verse 1, it talks about the scoffer. That's a very famous figure in the Proverbs, this scornful person. For example, in Proverbs 13, verse 1, it says, A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. <clears throat> to close your ears to the reproof of the word to become self-wise is a truly fatal attitude because it separates you from the possibility of repentance and turning and returning. Our psalm and the Proverbs show a very close interest in the question of, way, uh, the question of means and ends, the ultimate goal of certain pathways 
and uh, the logical consequence of a, of a process, a person's destiny. So we see in our psalm this, this universal metaphor of the two roads. So in American literature, the most famous example is Robert Frost, of course, who wrote that two roads diverged in a wood and I took the one less traveled by, less traveled by and that has made all the difference. So our psalm here, very similarly to uh, Proverbs chapter two, distinguishes these two paths and these two ends. There's an, there's an implicit invitation and there's a very explicit warning. In verse six, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. If you choose the way of the ungodly, after 20 years, after 40 years, after 60 years, your life and your accomplishments and the person that you have become will be like what happens on the tops of the mountains in Palestine. And that is where the farmers lay out a flat area where they lay down their, <clears throat> their crops and they have their oxen trot over it and then they winnow it by throwing it up in the air that catches the breeze. And the person who's not connected to Christ, their, their whole existence blows away like the chaff into the mountains. And Jesus takes this image even a step further and talks about it being burned. This is the, the threat. Verse five, the threat is that when such a person left to themselves and their own self-wisdom, their own self-determined life, they will, be, uh, they will fail that final examination of life. They will be excluded from the congregation of God's saints, perhaps in this life, but certainly in the life to come. In verse six, it tells us that they will, they will surely perish in withering frustration, separated from the fountain of life, who is God himself, they will perish. So these connections with the Psalter and the, these, these connections between our Psalm and the, uh, the Proverbs are clear, but I'd like for us to consider even a little bit more uh, deeper here. Let me suggest that our psalm is like those two pillars at the entrance to the temple. There is Yaquin and Boaz. And at the beginning of the Psalter, we have a double introduction. We have Psalm 1, which is closely connected then with Psalm 2. They are a double introduction to the reading of the Psalter as a whole. You can see that they're tied together uh, in a number of ways. Well, let me just note in passing, that some of the rabbinical traditions take Psalms 1 and 2 as a unit, and even some of the manuscript traditions, which quote, uh, which in, in, in Acts 13, 33, where they quote Psalm 2, verse 7, they introduce it as the first Psalm. But if you think that's scholarly minutia, just take a look at how these two Psalms are structured together with an envelope structure. What I mean by that is there's a bookend. Look at verse 1 uh, of Psalm 1, Ashreha ish. And then if you look at the end of Psalm 2, it has the same expression. Blessed begins with blessing, and then it ends again with ashre. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. I'm not suggesting that these are one psalm, but I am suggesting that these are the two sides of a doorway. Or let me put it this way. Have you seen those medieval double manuscripts that have a hinge in the middle? Those are called diptychs, diptychs or some of the early uh, the Dutch uh, uh, painters. It's a, it's a panel, a double paneled portrait. And you read uh, both in connection 
with each other. Let me suggest that God has given us this diptych, this two-paneled portrait as the way by which we are instructed to enter into all the riches of the life with God that we see in the Psalter. So how is it that you can have the thrill of knowing that God is yours? How is it that you can know that God is favorable to you? How is it that you can walk through the devastations of this present evil age and have the assurance that God is your protection, that he is for you and that he is watching over you? The only way is to go through this double paneled door. This is the way in. Psalm 1 tells us that we must go through the way of wisdom, the door of wisdom. Psalm 2 tells us that we must go through the door of wisdom as well. Look at verse 10 in Psalm 2. It says, be wise. Be wise. Now that door of wisdom is like the door of the church of the nativity in Bethlehem, which I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's been walled up. So many times it's been conquered, it's been walled up so the, uh, the cavalry can't come charging in. Right? So in order to get in, you have to get off your high horse and you have to bow down. You have to bow down and give up rejecting your worldly ways of thinking, as verse 1 suggests, your worldly ways of behaving, your worldly ways of belonging, what, what you value to belong to, sitting in this corner seat. And you have to find your orientation in the Lord himself. And his revelation, his written communication to you becomes your point of orientation and your way of determining what is true, what is real, what is right, and what is beautiful. All the big questions. It's the Torah, the the, the instruction of God in its fullness that guides you and that orients you, not yourself, not self-chosen, but submitting then to God's instruction. This is the way of wisdom. This is the way of repentance. This is the way of uh, humble uh, turning to God that Psalm 1 calls us to. But what does that mean? Let's, exp- let's think of it in terms of the other side of the diptych. How, what does that mean? What is the way of wisdom? The way of the wisdom. What is the way of being wise? As Psalm 2 verse 10 uh, asks, it means, it means to kiss the sun, Psalm 2 says. It means, as Psalm 2 ends, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. It means, to, it means to have and to rest on Christ. This is the way into the path of life. The only possibility for this, this full God-enjoying life that the Psalter invites us to is to have the Son, is to have the Lord's anointed, as he says in chapter uh, Psalm 2, verse 2. He is, the, he is literally the, the Messiah. He is the Christ to have the Christ, the only authorized representative of God on earth, that is the way to happiness. He is, uh, he is the must-have. There is no refuge apart from him. I think that one of the reasons that Psalm 1 is connected so explicitly to uh, this messianic psalm, Psalm 2, is to point us past David and his descendants, which is always the temptation of Old Testament saints and even uh, non-Christian Jews today, to look for that, uh, for that uh, a particular 
a political leader. But we see in Psalm 1, this Psalm 1, that there's this ideal person, this person who rejects all forms of godliness whatsoever. That's the one in whom we must put our hope, that ideal person. Many years ago, uh, a gentleman named Harry Flax had the opportunity to visit Palestine and to address a group of Arabs and Jews. And he took as his text this psalm, Psalm 1. And he asked the question, who is this blessed man of whom the psalmist speaks? He was an absolutely sinless man. And then he went on to ask, was he our father Abraham? And one person then listed Abraham's sins his lying, his false representation regarding his wife, his cowardice. Was it Moses? And then another listed his temper, his murder. And one after another, suggestions were made and rejected. And then an old Jewish man stood up and he said, brothers, I have a little book here. It's called the New Testament. I've been reading it, and if I could believe this book, if I could be sure that it's true, I would say that the man of Psalm 1 was Jesus of Nazareth. Even David and all his finest descendants failed in the end to make God's revelation their delight, to spend their days meditating, soaking, being penetrated by this word, soliloquizing on it, as it were, meditating and memorizing it. Even David himself and Solomon failed, 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 right? There was only one. There was only one descendant of David who not only said that man shall not live by bread alone, but who actually carried out that life and who lived by that word that comes from the mouth of God. He was so saturated with scripture that even in his most unique, his most uh, characteristically individual expressions, even as we saw with the, uh, the Beatitudes, he drips scripture wherever he goes. The aroma of scripture is on everything he says and on everything he does. He is this ideal man, and he is, of course, the only one who, f who fulfills both parts of the diptych. He is, as Psalm 2 puts it so explicitly, he is the son. He is the son begotten of the father. He is the truly godly son. He is the man who, although he was uh, uh, spat upon, although he was rejected, although he was, he was looked down on and uh, slandered for 33 years, his entire life was given the, the divine approval by God raising him from the dead and vindicating him from all slander. He is the righteous man. How is it that you on that last day will not have your deeds blown away as the chaff? How is it that you you who want a life that's planted like a tree by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and does not wither, how is it that you will find these things? How will, it, how will you find the way not to perish on the last day? And that is, you will find it 
you will find your escape, put negatively, you will find your escape through this man, through this righteous man being connected with him, our Lord Jesus, and positively, you will have this fruitful, uh, meaningful, uh, permanently significant life, again, by being connected to this man. This imagery that we read here in verse 3 it is directly applicable to here in, in uh, Southern California, is it not? It's, our geography is very similar to Palestine. <clears throat> have you noticed, as soon as you leave the city, have you noticed that nothing green grows on the south side of the hills? And why is that? Too much sun. Too much sun. Where do the trees grow? On the north side of the hills, the sides of the north. Right? And on this north side, where do the trees grow? <clears throat> They grow in the valleys, right? Why do they grow in the valleys? Because that's where the dew stays on longer. And that's where the, the secret channels of water come in, right? And that's who you are as a person connected to Christ. It doesn't mean that you won't have trouble. It doesn't mean that you won't have seasons. But it means that there's a permanent fruitfulness and there's a long-term uh, meaning in your life by the grace of God. God will give you a satisfying measure of success in good time, no matter how small it may seem, uh, your life at the moment. The last family uh, of the China Inland Mission to leave, they left two years after the communists took over. And so for those two years, they were confined to one room, one small room. Their only furniture was one stool. They made food once a day. They were there with their small daughter. And the only way that they had uh, any kind of fuel was that the father, Art Matthews, he collected animal dung from the streets and used that to burn. That's the life they had for two years. But their experience of God's grace and faithfulness and his blessing on them and provision for them, even in that time of privation and suffering, they recorded in a book called Green Leaf in Drought Time. Green leaf and drought time, obviously taken from our song. So brothers and sisters, let us then, as those who have escaped these judgments by being connected to Christ, as those who are promised these benefits, this fruitfulness by being connected to Christ, let us then take our crosses up and let us follow our Savior even as he leads us through this Psalm 1. Let me put it very briefly. Negatively, as verse 1 demands, let us continue to resist the seductions of the world. It comes in various forms and it's right there. Of course, it's just as close as your computer, right? One of the strange, uh, painful, although instructive experiences of getting older is the grief of watching seminarians crash and burn in various ways. Someone who is so desperate to get married that when that non-Christian comes along, there they go. I, I've seen it. Right? The temptation is there. That, oh, there's, there's such a draw from, from this false church. I'll give up salvation by grace alone and go into the false church. Right? Or that sweet seduction of liberalism, which is not very far from any of our hearts. We want to get that, oh, we gotta be in. We want the approval of the academy. It opens a way for us in the world. Just be a little looser, right? And students go off 
into such things, right? That's negatively. Resists the negative influences, whatever they may be. And positively, as verse 2 demands of us, we delight ourselves in the scriptures. Now, brothers and sisters, it should encourage you, the very fact that you're here, if you have any serious interest in delighting yourself in the scriptures, it is because God has worked in you, right? As Romans 8, 7 says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. The fact that you delight in God's word shows that his spirit has already worked in you. But go on, go on in this word. This verse 2 was Jerome's, uh, was on the short list of uh, Jerome's favorite texts. He translated as follows. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he will exercise himself day and night. And Jerome did that for decade on decade, and he became the most influential Bible translator the world has ever known. This book is a strange book. It has a magic-like power in it that the more you hunger it and, 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 and eat of it, the more hunger uh, it gives you. The more you drink of it, the more thirst for it it produces in you. Matthew Henry said, to meditate on God's word is to discourse with ourselves concerning the great things contained in it with a close application of mind, a fixedness of thought, till we be suitably affected with those things and experience the savor and power of them in our hearts. The savor and power of them in our hearts. May God give to you and to me more and more of this rich experience of his word. But let us follow Christ not only negatively by putting certain things aside, not only positively, but most importantly, eschatologically. Eschatologically. We're not to look back with regret. We're not to look around us and be just consumed by anxiety, which is always there knocking on the door. But we're to look up and we're to look forward and to place our hope in the promises that God has made to us. And we have them here in this psalm. Verse 5 is good news to us because of Christ, as John the Apostle tells us in 1 John 4, right? He speaks about our having confidence in the day of judgment. Now, that may strike us as strange, but it, because, it comes from knowing and believing the love that God has for us, right? That's by knowing the love of God, we face the day of, conf- of judgment, even that great day, with confidence. We stand in the congregation of the righteous, with confidence and with joy. It is your greatest privilege in this world to stand in the congregation as a member of God's people on Sunday and to sing the Lord's praises. Or even to stand in this congregation today is a tremendous privilege. And on that last day, we will enjoy fellowship, not just with each other, but with saints across the world, from all nations, and across the ages as we enjoy our God to the end. Let me just, in in conclusion, draw your attention to a touch of gospel sweetness in verse 6, the beginning of there. It says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This is not some bare intellectual knowledge. Our God is not a Zeus who is simply up there and kind of intellectually knows what you're going through. No. We see a similar expression in Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. It says, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for, same word, He cares for, as the NIV puts it very nicely, he cares for those who trust in him. So brothers and sisters, as you go out into this week, as you go out into the rest of the semester, keep that eschatological perspective, knowing 
that the Lord cares for you. He knows your way and he cares. He cares for you and for your way. Join me in a brief word of prayer. Let's stand as we pray, shall we? Our Lord in heaven, we thank you for this outstanding one that you sent, this ideal man who was not touched by any unrighteousness, but walked in accordance with your law in every way. We thank you that he lived the life that we could not live, and he suffered the penalty for, uh, for sin and for disobedience, that he perished and he was excluded that we might be included. We thank you for our substitute and our savior, the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would enable us then to follow in his train and to reject those sweet seductions that are, are so often around us, to delight ourselves in your word, even in the busyness of our lives. And give us an eschatological perspective every day, Lord, in every hour and every minute, that we might be looking to you, to your approval, to your, uh, the smile of your face, that you would grant us grace and strength. Oh, Lord, enable us to rejoice in you by... Uh, because of your fatherly care and commitment to us, that you care for us because of Christ. We bless you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2016, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.